Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word handy, would you be turning to Luke chapter 7? Luke chapter 7, and we'll begin there in just a moment. Last week was one of the weeks where I'd like to try to get right into the lesson. Often, More often than not, though, there are several housekeeping things we want to make mention of, and sometimes this is the best time to do that. We are certainly thankful that you are here this morning and today to be with us. It is one of those uh, rainy days where all of us are, are tired, of course, but we're glad that you're here. I, I would suggest that as we say to you, there is, uh, we have lunch and we have our afternoon service, so if you don't like the rain, then just come and stay all day. Stay all afternoon with us. Come and you have to drive in it to get here, but you can stay through lunch. You can stay through the afternoon service, and those who do that are usually blessed. We're pretty tired after that as well, but we have a great day, encouraging day together, and so we would invite you to do that. We're thankful to all of our visitors who are with us today. I don't know as I was looking around before service, if we had any true visitors, I think Ricky, Richie tried to get the sticker for most visitors, but then Don made a push at the end there uh, with some of his family here. But we're just thankful to see uh, all these folks, again, who aren't exactly visitors, but we're thankful uh, that you've chosen to be with us today. Uh, I do want to make mention that uh, we are appreciative of all those that went to be a part of the Ladies' Day at Rockwood yesterday. Uh, of course, I didn't get to hear Hannah's lessons, but I know she did a great job. Appreciate all those ladies from here that came and supported. Appreciate Gabe uh, driving the bus. He had a busload full uh, of folks to go and be a part of that. And I believe the ladies there were very appreciative to you all that went uh, and encouraged not only Hannah, but the ladies there with your presence. And it was just a great day together. Appreciate uh, Brian leading our singing this morning. And of course, Keith's uh, wonderful thoughts as we thought about the Lord's Supper for a few moments together. Appreciate Joe's prayers as we always do. We look forward to studying together for just a few moments this morning. A couple of other things to mention real quick before we get into the lesson. Uh, this is a picture of a billboard. It's probably a little tough to make out where you are. This is not a billboard here, though, but we have a couple in our area that will look like that. Uh, we had Joey Farrell from the Gospel of Christ come a few months ago and talk to us about the work that's being done on that program and how we support them in that area. He messaged me a couple of weeks ago. I guess it was on the Saturday of our Valentine's dinner because we were kind of stressed and busy and trying to get everything ready and going, and he messaged me. He said, hey, we got a couple billboards going up in your area. I want to make you guys aware of it. He told me to go sit out beside him and wait until it came up and take a picture of it. I said, I don't have time for that, Joey. Uh, but somebody else shared this one. And again, it's a, a not in our area, but that's what it will look like. It's got the earth, the globe on the left-hand side said the gospel of Christ. It'll have the time of the program here in our area in the middle. And then on the right, it should say the Saudi Church of Christ. Now, this is going to be hard for you to make out, but this is a brief map. Uh, on the top, there's two different spots. There's one that says number two. That is, I believe, the one that's by Walmart uh, and that whole shopping center in, in Hickson there on 153, just past Academy and all that. Uh, Hannah and I did drive through these areas on Thursday night together and didn't see them when we were there. The one to the right hand, middle right side of the page is down past uh, five guys going out that way where a lot of you live. I think it's past uh, the Einstein Brothers Bagels there, whatever that shop is. Uh, but there should be two that are running this ad. And if I'm correct, he told me it costs like $12. These are digital ads uh, that cost $12 to run. And they'd already run several hundred times when he messaged me. And so I uh, just wanted to make you aware of that. Maybe you see them. Uh, maybe you have someone that asks you if they see Saudi Church of Christ up there. And we're thankful for the work that we can do and how we can support them and hope that uh, that work continues to go uh, well. Uh, one other thing in the PowerPoint here, somebody snuck a few pictures into my slides this morning when I wasn't looking, uh, but today is an 18th birthday of one special, uh, not so little girl anymore, 
and we're going to celebrate in a few moments when we're done here. Um, there's a lot of cake. I don't know how much food there is, but there's a lot of cake. So if you want to stay for lunch, you can sugar yourself up real good uh, with a lot of dessert and cake and brownies. Uh, but we, we're thankful for all of our young people. Chase turned 18 uh, a while back, Kennedy, here today, and we want to celebrate her, and we're excited uh, about that here in just a few moments as we finish up and have lunch together. Compassion is often considered one of the greatest characteristics of the human spirit. You know, I said last week in our lesson that often I think even atheists, even those who are unbelievers, even those who we might call heathen, who don't necessarily live their lives according to God's word, would agree that compassion is a good thing. Compassion is defined by the American Heritage Dictionary as deep awareness of the suffering of another coupled with the wish to relieve it. I've said many times here recently that we are certainly aware of the suffering of others. One of the probably negative effects of social media, in particular Facebook and, and other things, is the idea that we are constantly bombarded with a lot of bad things in the world, a lot of sickness and a lot of death. It's a good way to be beware of that or, or to know about that, to be able to pray for others, but it's also overwhelming because there are a lot of people who are suffering in the world today. But when we think about compassion, we combine with that not only the knowledge, the awareness of someone's suffering, but also the wish to relieve it. And we see throughout Scripture that Jesus was often moved with compassion. I ask you to open up to Luke chapter 7 to begin, but there are numerous occasions that we don't have time to turn to and mention. In Matthew chapter 14, prior to feeding the 5,000, Jesus is moved with compassion. In Matthew chapter 15, prior to feeding the 4,000, Jesus is moved with compassion. And in Luke chapter 7, maybe one of the moments where we most have compassion for each other is in death. It's in sorrow. It's in those times at the funeral home or the visitation where we see someone who is hurting. And it's this widow who had her son die, the widow of Nain, in Luke chapter 7. And in verse number 13, the Bible says that Jesus, when he saw her, he had compassion. But notice, even according to our definition a moment ago, not only did he feel compassion, but he said something. He took action. Jesus can take action above and beyond what we can because he can actually raise this young man from the dead. But he also speaks Right When I mentioned the funeral home or the visitation a few moments ago, we are moved with compassion to go and visit with a family, to say things like, we're sorry for your loss. And so Jesus here is moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion towards a leper in Mark chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 20, he showed compassion to two blind men. And above all, the Hebrew writer would say in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 17 through 18 that Jesus is now compassionate as our high priest. You see, that compassion doesn't end. He's not here walking among us where he's going to put his hands on people or speak words and they're going to be healed, but he still feels compassion even now as our compassionate high priest. Jesus was often moved with compassion. But we also see from Scripture that Christians are commanded to be compassionate to one another. We are commanded to be compassionate individuals. In 1 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 8, Peter would talk about this 
1 Peter 3, 8. As he says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. It continues on through verse number 9 with a list of some of the things that we should be doing. But included in that is that we are to be compassionate for one another. But not only that, Jude mentions in his very brief epistle, Jude verses 22 and 23, that we are to have compassion for the lost. Christians are commanded to be passionate people. Yes, toward one another, absolutely. Within this room, within this family assembled right here, we're to be compassionate. But not only there, we're to be compassionate towards the lost as well. As you study the New Testament, though, as you work your way through the New Testament, there is one group of people who appear to be totally lacking in this great moral quality. There's one group of people who just don't have it together when it comes to this particular word, which is why this title is kind of interesting, right? It's kind of a play on words in, in one sense, because we want to talk about the compassion of the Pharisees, but the truth is, when we look at Scripture, it's not there. It doesn't exist because they don't practice compassion. But that doesn't mean there aren't three lessons that we can look at this morning, three examples that we want to examine together. Number one, the Pharisee and the tax collector that are mentioned in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Now, as you turn there, and if you are aware of this occasion, we are talking about a parable that Jesus tells. Luke records for us, also he spoke this parable. And we also get a clue into how the Pharisees behave and act because he says that he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The devout Jew, the devout Jew was known to pray or observe prayer three times daily, right? You may have heard this before. At 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. Three times the devout Jew would observe prayer. And prayer was especially, or excuse me, was held, thought to be especially effective if it was offered in the temple. So many times these folks who wanted to be seen were offering up prayer in the temple courts. They would go to the temple courts to pray. Let's first look at the Pharisee in this particular parable. And we might notice, first of all, from your notes, that the Pharisee prayed to himself. He didn't actually pray to God. That's not what he was doing here. He prayed to himself. The Jewish law, because, well, we can think about not only prayer, but a couple of other areas in which these Pharisees would get caught up. Another one is fasting. Jewish law prescribed one obligatory fast a year, and that was the annual day of atonement. But those who wished to gain special merit when it came to their Judaism, they also would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. So it's noteworthy as we think about this Monday and Thursday thing. Somebody might say, well, why, why Mondays and Thursdays? Are those holy days? No, we can go back through history and see that Mondays and Thursdays were the market days when Jerusalem was full of people. Those who fasted then would show up on these days with whitened faces and appeared in disheveled clothes, and those days gave their piety a chance to show before the largest audience possible. 
So not only was it the praying to themselves and not to God, and also the fasting, but even number three, the tithing that they would do. The Levites were to receive a tithe of all of a man's produce. But the Pharisee tithed everything. This is what this Pharisee would do. Notice verse number 12, if you turn there to Luke chapter 18. This Pharisee tithed everything, even things which he did not have an obligation to tithe. And this was common. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew 23. They're pretty scathing. I wouldn't encourage you to read it if you want to feel good. But in Matthew 23 and verse 23, he mentions how they tithe in mint and anise and cumin. They're tithing, this Pharisee's tithing everything. Why? So that people can see it. So that he can say, look what I do. I don't give that just 10%. I give of everything that I possess. This attitude was typical of the worst of Phariseeism. But let's notice secondly here, the tax collector or the publican. Notice beginning in verse number 13 that he stood afar off, that he would not even lift his eyes to God. The King James Version does not really do it justice to his humility, for he actually prayed, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. As if he was not merely a sinner, but maybe even the sinner. He was par excellence. I am the worst of the worst. That is the way this publican is going to pray. And when we think about true prayer, true prayer comes from setting our lives beside the life of Christ, does it not? No doubt, everything that that Pharisee said was true. Everything that he listed about himself was exactly the way that he behaved. He did fast twice a week. He did meticulously give tithes. He was not as other men are, Still, he less he, was he like that tax collector. But the question is not. Hear me clearly. Hear the words of Scripture clearly. The question is not, am I as good as my fellow man? That's not the comparison. The question is, am I as good as Christ? That is the comparison that we should be making. It all depends on who we compare ourselves with. And when we set our lives beside the holy life of Jesus Christ and beside the holiness of God, all that is left to say in that moment is what? God, be merciful to me, the sinner, not in comparison to everyone else or everything else. When it comes to the compassion of the Pharisees, this Pharisee didn't have any because he was caught up in himself and what he was doing. Number two, the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. You know this well because the Pharisees were out to get some charge on which they could discredit Jesus, right? This poor woman, she's not even necessarily the problem, though she may have problems. They're out to catch Jesus. And it's in this moment in John chapter 8 that as we say, they think they've got Jesus hung on the horns of a dilemma. When a difficult legal question arose, as it does here, the natural and routine thing for these people to do was to take it to a rabbi. Right? In the Jewish culture, that was their problem. We've got a problem, and then their thing was, let's go find a rabbi and allow him to make a decision. So what are the scribes and the Pharisees? Notice in chapter 8 and verse number 3, what are the scribes and Pharisees doing? 
From a purely legal perspective, they're doing the right thing. They approach Jesus as a rabbi with a woman who has been taken in adultery. Now, if you know your history, and many of you do because you're aware of this situation, adultery was punishable by death. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 10. Adultery, plain and simple, was punishable by death. So again, they are doing the right thing because this woman was liable to death by stoning. Now, here's the dilemma though, right? What's the dilemma they're trying to catch Jesus on? If he said that this woman ought to be stoned to death because that's what the law demands, then there's two things that follow. First, he would lose the name that he had, that he had gained for love and mercy, and never again would he probably be called the friend of sinners, right? Now, he's not going around trying to draw attention to himself solely because he's looking for a prideful kind of commendation, But he has attracted this name of being merciful, being full of love, forgiving others, being a friend to sinners. So if he says, yes, stoner, he's going to lose that name. But also, number two, he would come into collision with Roman law. For the Jews had no power to pass or to carry out the death sentence on anyone. So that's one thing there. On the other hand, if he said that the woman should be pardoned, it could immediately be said that he was teaching to break the law of Moses. And they're going to try to catch him one way or the other. Either he loses his name as a friend of sinners or he is going to be guilty of breaking the law of Moses. And not only that, but that he is condoning and even encouraging people to commit adultery. Kind of sounds like a dilemma right there, doesn't it? That was the trap in which the scribes and the Pharisees sought to entrap Jesus. But as he always does, he finds a way to turn it around back on them. What does he do? You know it pretty well. Most of the world does as well. He stoops down with his finger. He writes on the ground. And the scribes and the Pharisees continued to insist on an answer, don't they? They continue, verse number 7, to ask him, to want him to give them an answer. But what Jesus says in effect is this, all right, go ahead and stone her, but let the man that is without sin be the first to cast a stone. Now, it may be that the word for without sin means not only without sin, but even without a sinful desire. It could be that. So consider it this way then. Jesus may have been saying, yes, you may stone her, but only if you never wanted to do the same thing yourselves, as in commit a sin or commit adultery. You can stone her, but only if you've, even, if you've never even had the thought before. So you can probably picture, as I can, the silence that ensued, right? Not only are they caught then on this dilemma, they didn't catch him, but then they're being turned inward to think about themselves. And a lot of times that makes us shut mouth, right? They stand there in silence until they begin to slowly drift away. <clears throat> so the Jesus and the woman were left alone. This passage here shows us two things about the attitude of the Pharisees, though. Number one, they had a wrong conception of authority. These scribes and Pharisees, they were the legal experts of the day. To them, problems were taken for a decision. It is clear that to them, authority was then characteristically critical. 
That authority should be based on sympathy. That authority should be, the aim of that authority should be to try to reclaim a sinner. But that never entered their minds. That's not what they were thinking about. They conceived their function, their concept of authority, their function as giving them the right to stand over others. Like a slave master to watch for every mistake and every deviation from the law. Question, does that sound like compassion to you? Absolutely not. A person who stands over someone, watching them, waiting for the mistake, only to call them out, that's not compassion. That's the Pharisees. And there are still those today who think Christianity gives them the right to judge everyone else's hearts and motives and to condemn them. But secondly, this this incident here shows the Pharisees' attitude toward the people. They were not looking on this woman as a person at all. They were looking at her only as a thing, as an instrument whereby they could formulate a charge against Jesus. It's possible. Consider even for a moment. It's possible that they don't even know her name. They just grab her. They find out about the issue and they bring her and shove her in front of Jesus. To them, she was nothing but a shameless case of adultery that could now be used as an instrument to suit their purposes. But this incident not only tells us about the Pharisees' wrong attitude, but also about Jesus and his attitude toward the sinner. We must be willing to do what Jesus tells us to do, to apply judgment as to others as we would ourselves, right? That's what Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 tells us. It doesn't say don't judge, period. It says judge the way you would want to be judged. Our first emotion towards a person who is caught in a mistake should be pity. Is that not how Jesus treats this woman here? It's easy to draw the wrong lesson altogether and think that Jesus is saying that it's not a big deal. Don't worry about your sin as if the sin did not matter. But that's not what Jesus says. It's as if Jesus said to the woman, I know you have made a mess of things, but life is not finished yet. Your life is not over. I am giving you another chance to redeem yourself. Don't continue in it. Don't continue doing what you are doing. But as he says in verse number 11, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus exhibited genuine pity here. The basic difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is that they wish to condemn He wished to forgive. That's the difference. It's compassion. And he gave this woman a challenge. He confronted this woman with the challenge of the sinless life. He did not say to her, it's all right. Don't worry. Just keep going as you were going. It's not a problem. It's not a big deal. He said, it's all wrong. But go out and fight. Change your life from top to bottom. Go and sin no more. That's the encouragement of Jesus. That's the compassion. You see, compassion can still involve truth. Compassion can still involve telling someone that they need to change. They need to change. But go and don't do it anymore. That's compassion. Not just using people as sinners who we can use for our own purpose to make ourselves feel better as these scribes and Pharisees would do. Third and finally this morning... The sinful woman who's found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 48. 
Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 48. This scene is at the courtyard of the house of Simon the Pharisee. This sinful woman, and this scene is found at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now, if you open to Luke chapter 7, you're not going to see the name Simon. You're going to have to go to Matthew chapter 26 or Mark chapter 14, which are the parallel passages which call this man Simon the leper. But here we see that one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Now, as you may know from, again, a little bit of Jewish history, the, the Pharisees, or excuse me, the, the houses of well-to-do people, not just the Pharisees, that were often built around an open courtyard. That courtyard may have a fountain. It may form a bit of a square, if you will, in which people could sit. And often, this is where they would gather during warm weather to eat their meals. And it was the custom. If a rabbi was at a meal in such a house, that a few things would happen. One would be that all kinds of people would come in, right? That courtyard is great for hospitality because more people can come and sit and listen. But also, there are three other things that were done. Number one, the host would place his hand on the guest's shoulders and gave him the kiss of peace. So this was a mark of respect that they would do during these times. Judas betrayed Jesus with such a kiss, did he not? In Matthew chapter 26. Secondly, cool water was poured over the guest's feet to cleanse and to comfort them. So there's this kiss of peace. There's the cool water. And then number three, either a pinch, if you will, of, of sweet smelling incense or aroma was burned or even a drop of maybe rose oil was placed on the guest's head. These were good manners during that time. And in this particular case, as you look at this, we see none of that being done. None of that was done for Jesus as he entered this Pharisee's house. In the East, as well, in the Middle East, guests did not sit, right? They didn't have chairs in the same way that we sit down that we're going to do here in a few moments. But they would recline. And so that is how this woman, this sinful woman, is going to be at the feet of Jesus. Simon was a Pharisee, all right? Simon was one of the separated ones. So why did he even invite Jesus to his house here in Luke chapter 7? Well, it's possible that he was an admirer of Jesus. That doesn't seem likely because he didn't do any of those three things that we mentioned just a few moments ago. But, but it's possible that he was an admirer of Jesus. Number two, it's possible that he invited Jesus to his house so that he could try to trap him. Right? They've been doing it all along. We've noticed several occasions where they would try to trap him. And so it's possible that he invites him in, come to my house, and I'm going to be the one to catch Jesus doing something wrong. But it's most likely, number three, that maybe, and I love the way this was said. I read it in some notes I had. But it's most likely that Simon, the Pharisee, was a collector of celebrities. A collector of celebrities. You ever know anybody like that? They're always going to tell who they've met. They're always going to try to have somebody in their sphere of influence and who they know. And so maybe Simon was a collector of celebrities. He's just trying to draw in Jesus, maybe the most active celebrity, so to speak, in this moment, but also other people who would want to come into his house to hear Jesus speaking. So on one hand, we have Simon the Pharisee. 
On the other hand, we have this woman. And can I tell you directly, this woman was a bad woman. She was a sinful woman. No one's trying to sugarcoat it and say, oh, Jesus is excusing her sin. She must be okay. She was a notoriously bad woman. She was a prostitute. It's highly possible that she stood on the fringe, right? She stood on the edges listening to what Jesus had to say. That maybe she just had a glimpse of him that she could see as she craned her neck around others. And around her neck, she wore a little jar, if you will, an alabaster that was full of concentrated perfume, which was very costly. You know the account there. She wished to pour it on his feet, for it was all she had to offer. But when she did, as she saw him, the tears came and fell upon his feet. If I could suggest to you here, this story demonstrates a contrast of two attitudes. Two attitudes of mind and heart. Simon was conscious of no need, so he felt no love, and he received no forgiveness. Right? That is the compassion of the Pharisees. It's not there. There's no need, so there's no love, so there's no forgiveness. Simon's impression of himself was that he was a good man in the sight of men and in the sight of God. But the woman, yes, sinful woman, was conscious of nothing else than oppressing need. She knew her need. So then she felt an overwhelming love for him. And so she received forgiveness. That's the difference in the compassion of the Pharisees and the compassion when we think about the compassion of Jesus. The one thing which shuts off a person from God is the idea that I am self-sufficient. I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. Paul would pray instead in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, I am the chief of all sinners. That's the attitude of this woman. That's not the attitude of the Pharisees. So the question is real simple as we conclude this morning. Are you more like Jesus or are you more like the Pharisees? Are you compassionate towards the lost? Do you see those who are lost in sin as individuals? Individuals who have been blinded by Satan? Individuals who need the gospel? Do you mourn over their sins and try to teach them? Or do you think about how good you are and how much better you are than them? Do you have compassion towards your brethren when they sin? Does your compassion try to warn them? We had a pretty good discussion a few moments ago in our young adult and college age class about this idea of confessing our sins to one another and how that usually frees us up then to help one another instead of keeping it inside and feeling shame. When I share my issues with others, I'm able to help them in their time of need. They're able to better help me when they know what I struggle with. But you know what that takes? It takes compassion and the compassion of Jesus, not the compassion of the Pharisees because they didn't have any. How do you treat those who fall away and then come back to God? Do we treat them with compassion or do we look down our nose at them and look at them as how, how in the world could you be a sinner? How in the world could you turn away? Sometimes as Christians, we allow the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life to drive us away from God. Sometimes we need a reminder about compassion. Does the degree of compassion in your life 
make you more like the master or the Pharisees? That's the simple question this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, maybe it's because of a lack of compassion. Maybe it's more because of decisions that you've made in your life. We'll be singing this song that we can encourage you in just a moment here to make a change in your life. The ultimate change is to be gospel obedient. Become a child of God. Put Christ on in baptism. Excuse me. Allow his blood to wash away your sins so that you can be added to the church by the Lord. We're thankful for that opportunity because it is in that opportunity that you can be saved and on the path to heaven above. But you've got to realize your sinfulness. You have to realize your need. Feel that overwhelming love for Christ and forgiveness and be obedient. If you want to know more about this plan of salvation, we'd study with you as soon as possible. Maybe you're here this morning, you've done that, but as we talked about in our class a few moments ago, do you know it's actually in James chapter 5, where the phraseology is used, one who wanders from the truth. Maybe you're here this morning, you've wandered away. Maybe it's because of a lack of compassion, maybe it's because of something else, but you'd like to be made whole again. Maybe it's sin in your life you'd like to make known before your brothers and sisters. Maybe it's a difficulty that you face that you need help of your brothers and sisters to pray with you and for you, we are just thankful for this moment that we have been given one more opportunity because we don't know what today or tomorrow or the rest of the week may or may not hold. We're given one opportunity right now to make our life right with God by becoming a Christian or coming back to him even now as we stand together and as we sing.